After years of negotiation, most African heads of state have signed the Africa Continental Free Trade Area Agreement. It is undoubtedly an important step towards further integration. But can economic integration be a good first step to even deeper integration? Today's host, Eva Pinar, has a conversation with Ms. Mame Awinador about African integration and the Africa Continental Free Trade Area. Mame Awinador is currently the Director of Operations and Head of Administration at Sakak Savannah. This is Leaders' Voices from Leaders of Africa, a podcast where we discuss African leadership from the perspective of thought leaders shaping politics, economics, education, and on this episode, Pan-African Integration. If people enter with a mindset of trying to win all, they will lose. But trade, you unify to strengthen yourself and know that, yes, in some areas you may not gain, but in the areas where you gain, you gain more than you have gained if you're by yourself. What are the potential benefits of a continental free trade area? Hi, my name is Eva. And my guest, Mami Awinado, joins me from Accra, Ghana, to speak about a prospect for meaningful integration in Africa. Mami Awinado, welcome. Thank you. So, recently, many African countries, ranging from Senegal to South Africa, signed a treaty establishing the Africa Continental Free Trade Area with an interest in integration. What will it take for Africa to integrate? Is a focus on economic integration a good first step? So pretty much, yes. When it comes to political integration, you're looking at more complex dynamics at play. You have, obviously with politics, you have the issue of governance, you're dealing with different opinions, you're dealing with ideas, but there's nothing that unites people more than economics. That's like pretty much money or business, people's livelihood. And so economic integration is pretty much the foundation for bringing people together. Money does bring people together and um, our common needs and desires in society that are, that is fueled by um, everyday life will bring us together beyond politics. So I strongly believe that economic integration is the first step to bringing Africa together or uniting the continent. Are there any steps that have been taken to ensure that this economic integration is successful? Well, yes. I mean, there have been several steps that have been taken regionally. So by different regional bodies that we have, um, ECOWAS, SACU, COMESA, the EAC. But currently, the most fundamental has been the AFCFTA. That's the African Continental Free Trade Area, the biggest in the world since the WTO was established in 94. And um, this is a very monumental step because what it's doing is that for the first time, it's putting intra-African trade at the forefront of trade within the continent. Since intra-African trade has contributed a very small percentage to global trade, this particular step by African states is actually opening the markets to say, hey, let's trade together as a continent. You know, we have soon our population will be up to a billion and this is the biggest market that we'll have in the world. So let's focus on this. And so this is a very key step from um, through economic integration to bring a significant form of continental uh, development and unity. Obviously, Africa integration requires some level of unity on multiple levels, political, identity, and even in terms of motivation. As you know, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah stated in his book, Africa must unite, that if we are to enjoy the full benefit of Africa-rich resources, we must unite to plan for our total defense and the full exploitation of our material and human means in the full interest of our people. So my question is, what do you view as the basis of Africa unity? 
And what can we do to foster this unity, especially to enjoy the full benefits of our resources as stated by Nkrumah? The thing is that in, in the continent, we have different cultures, we have different religious groups, we have the ethnicity element that comes into play, even within the the like internal states on the national level. But what I think is that despite having all of these things at play, whether it's the differences in terms of language or beliefs, one thing that unite, nothing unites people more than the element of trade. And I think that that's the one thing that um, Nkrumah foresaw. If you think about trade in its essence, people think it's just the exchange of goods, but it, it goes beyond that. It shapes belief, it shapes culture. If you look at anthropology, even through history, they will tell you that the first human being survived through trade. And everything that you consume shapes your idea of the person who produced the, the thing you're consuming. And so I think that one key thing is that beyond our differences, I think it brings us more together than trade world. If I'm in Ghana and I'm, and I'm consuming goods from Kenya, it makes me begin to think, oh, okay, so then the Kenyan is not so different from me. And the same thing, I mean, and vice versa. We've been consuming in Africa, consuming goods from the US and Europe and has made us very, what people call Europeanized or Americanized through goods and services. And so what trade will do is that it will break every barrier of culture, of belief, of religion. And it will begin to shape and bring us together as a people to see that, hey, we are not so different after all. We were eating rice from, hey, Nigeria, probably drinking tea from Kenya and realize hey, we are the same people at the end of the day. I think that trade is very key you know, in, in pushing that agenda. So we'll come back to the issue of trade. But first of all, I just want to know a little bit about yourself. Yeah, it is clear you have a passion for Pan-African unity. Where does this passion come from? your parents, upbringing, or school experiences? I think we are shaped by all of the factors you named above. I mean, in your socialization, when the family you're born into, of, of course, your parents play a role in all of that. I used to move around a lot. I grew up in Zimbabwe. I, I wasn't even aware I was in Code Black till I lived there. Because at the time, there were very strong racial dynamics at play because of the history of apartheid that had taken place within the region. And I also... Um, lived in India. I experienced the issue of racial dynamics that come from the caste system. I lived in France for a bit. And so even in Ghana, I lived here, there's this whole idea of what it means to be dark-skinned, being light-skinned, being the superior skin complexion. So think growing up and experiencing these things made me ask questions about my identity and my roots. And obviously looking for a sense of meaning because I knew I couldn't change how I looked. I needed it to make sense. Is this race inferior? And so it drove me to to read a lot and having to ask questions. And in doing that, in, in going back to history, it made sense. It made me have a better understanding of who I was and I appreciate that as an African. And because of that, finding that truth has made me want to give that back to somebody else, you know, on that journey, asking themselves questions also about their roots and identity, considering where we've come from as Africans through history. What took you to Zimbabwe? I'm interested to know. <laughs> yeah, so Zimbabwe, uh, at the time, my uh, father was working with the foreign service there. I mean, him being a diplomat by profession made us move around. So Zimbabwe was the first experience. I started school there from first grade. And so that was pretty much my formative years and growing up. That's why we were there for some time. For about four years, I was in Zimbabwe. You receive a bachelor's degree abroad. Interestingly, instead of schooling in the West, you attended the University of Pune in India for your undergrad education. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yes. How was your experience schooling in India? And what influenced your decision to go to India for your education? Interesting. I know. Oh, wow. India. It was a... 
it was so many things at the same time. The consciousness of who I was as a as an African started there. Moving there, I have to be honest, the environment was a bit hostile to Africans and people of a darker race because of the caste system. And so when I was there, it was hard in the beginning because the idea was, why are you here? Why are you not in your country studying? Are black people even smart? So there was extra pressure to work hard to prove a point that Africans are intelligent. So I was always on my toes. And I made sure that even when I wanted to relax, I didn't because I knew that I had a, a legacy to protect that would affect any other African that would come after me. Because there was a preconceived notion that, you know, we weren't really smart because some people who would come would struggle with maybe academics and, and balancing independence from family. And so, yes, um, for me, yes, the environment was hostile in the beginning. However, I found a way to navigate to appreciate where they were coming from and not really be angry about the narrow way that people process race. However, stand on that to, to do something, to build a positive identity around who I was as an African. Mami, how did you learn about the opportunity to school in India? Interesting. Oh, good point. So it's very funny. India wasn't the first time I was actually trying to go to the U.S. And when I had applied, obviously, the, I was having issues with funding because obviously we know how high it can be for undergrad. And the Indian opportunity came up because of a, a program they run in Africa called the ICCR. So they run it with African governments to promote culture exchange. And so it was a scholarship. They make Ghanaian students, other African students go over there for study. And just to see how Indian culture is like. And so I was one of the candidates that was picked. The scholarship sounded great to my father. He said, hey, look, Asia is the next big thing. So why don't you just go? And yes, I found myself there. And the rest is history, I guess. (laughs) Do you find parallels between Indians' experience and those of Ghana and the continent? Ah, experience. I would say, well, yes, they have come from a history of colonization, although they gained independence earlier than we did in the 1940s. I found some similarities with the food. I mean, if you look at South India, you can find very, like, inter- like very close connections with Africa. Upbringing, yes, in the maybe in the concept of family or um, certain values that are upheld in the society, you do f- find similarities there. Yes, and obviously, if you do, you you check history. There were there's a lot of history that shows a, a number of Ethiopian emperors who actually did rule in India at a point in time. Very interesting dynamic that people don't talk about often. Even Indians themselves don't know, but history records it. So it was a very interesting, you will find similarities, I think, between us. Um, but for them, they've maintained a very strong sense of culture, which we haven't done. I think that is where maybe we do have our differences. Then you attended the University of Cape Town for your honors degree in international relations and politics, then MPhil in international law. How did you find South Africa? Did the experience give you encouragement about achieving the Pan-African unity you spoke about? Oh boy. Yes, definitely, definitely. I was in Cape Town. Anybody who knows Cape Town will tell you. I was there actually during the whole conception of the Rose Must Fall movement. And that was when things were heightened about talking about decolonization of education, the concept of the history, how it's affected, you know, the Blacks looking at just the whole racial dynamic element. So I was there at the crust of it. And then the discussion came about, about what it means to be Black, what it means to be African. We're doing reading stuff by Nyerere, Franz Fanon. We're just like uh, people like Anoka Cabral. So we're engaging with material like this, which kind of heightened again, once again, my, my Pan-African 
uh, or how would I say, maybe ideas or objectives. And so, yeah, Cape Town played a key role in that. I can tell you had a rich experience in Cape Town, especially the Road Must Fall movement gave you a strong connection to participate in making Pan-African unity a reality, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. And, I, you know, to be honest, I even f- um, experienced firsthand, you know, some level of discrimination, you know, in academia over there. And so it was a thing whereby it had to bring up the discussion. You see, sometimes there can be issues between, especially when it comes to racial dynamics, it's very tricky because people don't want to talk about it. It's an elephant in the room. It's existing, but they don't want to, nobody wants to address it. So I experienced certain issues in academia when I was there. So the whole movement helped me to also be able to share what I was going through as a as a Ghanaian. First of all, the issue of xenophobic things that they have, and then the issue of race that was also there. And yeah, it was a very interesting experience. And um, but at least it led me to read more about you know read more of Nkrumah's work and engage with other scholars within the Pan African space. Your experience is very unique do not uncommon studying abroad but you think this international education makes you a bit removed from the experiences of an average Ghanaian or has this been something you've you've thought about can I be honest with you even like I have to say very much so because sometimes when you come back home and you want to talk about race people are thinking what are you talking about in Ghana especially on the national level we don't really engage with things of this nature even though race is not really a thing actually what I would say is we have issues of um what people would call colorism. So, but it's, it comes from race, but people don't know that. So coming, you know, as a Ghanaian, having these experiences outside and you want to try to engage with another average young person like you, they'll be thinking, what are you talking about? You know? Yes. And so, but they don't know that it exists. It's just that it exists within, uh, amongst us, but it's called something else. You call it, people will call it colorism. You see where the ideas are women, a woman being fair, you see, is, you know, preferred or seen as um, the epitome of beauty compared to a darker person. Or people would easily um, sell off land to, excuse me, like a foreigner who is Caucasian and their own people. It's ingrained in our mind. We just don't know where the root causes to even be able, like, even to be able to, like, be able to engage on a level of wondering where it's from. So, yeah, it's been difficult to try to relate. However, um, I think that it's easier with people who, from the, within the Southern African region, and the East, who kind of had independence a bit late, I would say. But if you are in Ghana, race is not an issue. Personally, it was coming to the United States that I felt I was black because race was never an issue to me back in Ghana. But the preferential treatment that some Ghanaians give to light-skinned people should be something that we must address. Exactly. Do you think Pan-African unity is driven by the elite? Good point. I think that there are two faces of the Pan-African movement. I think that in the beginning, you see, they had the people who had the privilege back in the day in Kuma's time, uh, the, I mean, the forefathers of the Pan-Africanism or the Pan-African movement, they were the ones who were privileged to leave to go study. And back in the day, it wasn't everyone who had the chance to. So it was either you're very brilliant or you came from a background of privilege. And so people would think that the movement was started by people from privilege, but it wasn't the case. However, currently, people who actually have left to go study um, abroad is a mixture of two people, two people, people from either average, back, I mean, regular background, low income background or very rich. Back, I mean, yes, rich backgrounds. You see, you have different thoughts in the movement. But I think that in every moment, if the movement is not people centered, it becomes problematic 
you see, if it, it becomes elitist when it brings there's division or exclusion of people, or people become marginalized in the discussion. But when it's people-centered, it should cover everybody, regardless of ethnicity or even um, or social standing. The class war can exist in the movement because the idea of being able to engage with topics like this is seen as some um, people who are poor have privilege who care about this thing, you know, because someone will be thinking, hey, I'm hungry. Who cares about African unity when I need food to eat? You see, so the thing is that how do you bring the discussion down to the average person who is struggling for them to understand that Pan-Africanism is about what is on your table? You see, that is the fight. The struggle is that we are looking for a better life, you know, a dignified life for the African, regardless of background. But yeah, we, it's very funny. How do you make sure that it doesn't current, you know, um, social issues, class issues in the, in the country or in the continent don't take over the discussion? It's, it's very true in terms of how do you bring the message to the lay person? I mean, who is thinking about the economic situation than thinking about unity? You know, so I think this is something that moving forward, African leaders have to start thinking about as to communicate the message of African unity to even the average person by the roadside. You are listening to Eva's conversation with Miss Mame Awinador. In the second half, they discuss the newest signed Africa Continental Free Trade Area. This is Leaders Voices. Now, I want us to get into the issue of trade. So as part of the African Union 2063 agenda is the aspiration to create the African we want. And through this, African Union launched the Continental Free Trade Area, which has been signed by 54 countries with the exception of Eritrea. And so far, only 27 countries have ratified the CFTA, which implies that it can be implemented. And African Union has scheduled the implementation of the trade agreement by beginning July 2020. As you know, um, the free trade agreement will include the creation of a single continental market for goods and services, free movement of business person and also investment, and the creation of custom union to streamline trade. Can you tell us a bit about the politics of ratification and as you, you see them, in particular, the gap between signature and also ratification, what can be done to encourage a lot of countries to ratify the agreement? With the first gap, one of the things is national interest. People feeling that they call it protectionism. You see it with the World Trade Organization people and trade wars between China and the U.S. People wanting to protect certain goods that they are producing. So countries that are moving towards manufacturing would want to protect their markets. And so these are the things that make things difficult. So when you sign an agreement like this, people try to like mention areas that they want to be excluded from tariff liberalization. So what will happen is that they may say, we want to exclude our tomato industry or this area when it comes to cars. So these are the things that become discussions that are, that, that can take a while in terms of people will be on the same page. Every country and the area they want to protect, Ghana, it may be palm oil for us. Togo, it may be meat. Every country will be one thing or the other. But one of the key things that is important to know that is that in trade agreements, some we lose some, you win some. But the gain is always more than the loss. You can't win everything. If people enter with a mindset of trying to win all, they will lose. But trade, you unify to strengthen yourself and know that, yes, in some areas you may not gain, but in the areas where you gain, you gain more than you have gained if you're by yourself. And I think one of the key things, even to encourage states, is to know that, like, for example, Nigeria taking a stand to close its borders for the past two months to open it in January. It was due to the, the rice industry. 
because they produce their own rice. But the surrounding nations like Togo, Ghana, Benin, we import rice from Asia. And the rice was coming into, onto their market, giving serious competition to the locally produced rice. So what can happen is that I was even saying beyond the trade agreement, how do we harmonize production where we say, maybe within the West African region, let's pick three nations that can produce rice for the entire region. And so what will happen is that rice will be produced on a, ma- on a larger scale and it will be better quality than one state doing it for itself. But I think that even beyond the trade, let's see how we can harmonize production so that we won't be competing with the same goods. We want to collaborate. And so with collaboration, we can look at things that we all have that are similar and think, okay, maybe we should be the markets producing this for the entire continent. Uh, so things like that. So imagine if um, Kenya, West East African countries come together with tea, they'll be producing tea not only for Africa, and then they can put the tea on the international market and compete with India and other, you know, Asian countries with the, on the tea market. So I think that, um, honestly speaking, yes, we'll win some, we'll lose some with, with the trade agreement. But one thing that is key is that national interest does not take you very far. You may think that you're going quick, but at the end of the day, you lose more than you would have if you came together and spoke with one voice. And can states trust each other? Like, do you think the African countries can trust each other? You know, trust is a very tricky word, but I'll tell you something. That uh, One thing is this, when you're looking at gains, it's like this, everything is a risk in life. Um, you can't even, I mean, let me just go back to, to everyday life, like even marriage. It's a risk. You can't know everything. But one thing is that you're taking a leap of faith to say this, I know that together we are stronger than we would have been apart. We've tried this road of being apart and doing things on our own. And we've seen where it's taken us 50 plus years after independence. We are still dependent on our former colonizers. So we're thinking right now, independently, we are too small to survive on our own. You see, China is speaking with one voice, with over a billion, a population of of over a billion. India, look at the population of the EU region alone. And Africa, you're talking about a country of what states like Ghana, 20 million plus, Togo. You have no, you don't have a say. But there's power in numbers. And is that, can we fully trust each other? No, but let's give it a shot. The other countries have done that, right? And when it comes to trusting, when you are, when you have development, the basic amount of trust you need is to know that at the end of the day, people will keep their end of the bargain. And that's why we have contracts to follow that. There's the law to make it work. So even the absence of trust, well, there's, that's why we can apply the law to ensure that everybody keeps their end of the bargain. How about the average person? Are there plans to enhance citizens' understanding of the Continental Free Trade Agreement? Good point. Actually, yes, that's one of the key things that's been discussed, that how do we, you know, the capacity building and how do we educate, even get the younger generation coming, growing up, getting to understand the the importance of even our economies moving towards production. Is there enough work being done? No. Even, I'll tell you, people who are supposedly educated are clueless about the AFCFTA. I don't think enough is being done in terms of marketing or even explaining what it's all about. People are confused. Even politicians are confused, you see. And so the thing is that people need to have, first of all, understand what is trade beyond goods and services. The element of shaping culture, belief, idea, and then bringing it to the idea of goods and services and then taking that in our local dialects to the average person to understand. So that uh, when you sit here, you're sitting in Ghana, you're eating uh, rice from where? Vietnam. <laughs> that, you don't, you see, it's all trade. People don't understand these things. So how do you break it down for them to get it? 
that what you are buying here, when you go and buy your Coke and stuff, you're putting money in the pocket of somebody somewhere in another country or across, you know, in Europe. But we want to put pockets in our own people, money in people, our own people's pockets. And that is what we want to be able to explain to the average person. Is enough being done in that area? I don't think so. More has to be done. And so maybe conversations like this can be a stepping stone to doing that. This is very important because the average person understanding of the trade agreement is an important step to successful implementation. For instance, recent xenophobic attacks on some African citizens in South Africa was due to the understanding that the Africans were there to take their jobs. But if they have had the understanding that the African brothers were there to work and also build the South African economy, this wouldn't have happened. Hence, with the issue of trade, enhancing citizens' understanding is very important because we don't want the situation where some African citizens will think that their countries have become a dumping ground for export from other African countries. I think that the best way to even make people understand is this. Einstein said something. He said that unless you can explain something, you haven't understood it. Let's take away all the economic terms that make things sound so cumbersome and abstract and out of this world. Let's just break it down to everyday life and um, and explain it on that level to the layman. And also, how about those people who lose from this trade agreement in the short term? I mean, so that when it comes to loss, truth of the matter is this. We're already losing from the current state of um, so the, our current trade situation, whether it's with um, the EU or Asia or the US. question is this. To what extent are we losing? Some people are gaining to some extent and then they think that, uh, you know, well, compared to what they would lose in a different situation is better. Like, for example, currently, because we don't produce anything, we import so much, but you're spending so much to bring in a lot. You don't even see that even though you bring and you're able to sell, you could make much more from if things were produced here. So you always there's always some kind of loss you need to incur to be able to move to the next level. If that understanding is not there, people will never go forward. If you want to not lose and be comfortable, well, you're going to stay where you've always been. And then you'll keep complaining. But there's a sacrifice to be made for anything that is great. And countries that have done it, I mean, the EU has been through that. You need to go through, China did that for years, you see, of closing their their country to the rest of the world. Even India did that. So yes, you're going to lose some. But like I said, it's short term. But it's nothing compared to what you're going to gain in the long term. But the EU has unhappy people about their own trade agreement. Well, the EU dynamic is very different because um, with the EU, I mean, mind you, all the raw materials that you get in the world, it comes from way Africa. So the EU dynamic is very different because they they are already buying the raw material and then they're producing finished goods and then they are they have their own their own trade dynamic situation also is a little different because of the nature of the euro and so some of the issues that they are having has to also do with then the migrant influx and so it's a very different situation altogether when it comes to the african context i really feel like for a long time we always try to look at what has happened in another trade block to explain our situation Europe is different from Africa. And for us, what we are trying to do now, we are seeing that this is different. Different because we are the source of everything that is material in the world, whether it's food or minerals. And we are saying that not only do we want to be the source, we also want to be the producers of finished goods. And that is where we differ from the EU story or the NAFTA story or whatever is happening in Asia. So we are not only going to be growing it, but now we also will also be producing, and that is a different level compared to what other countries that were in the northern hemisphere have experienced. 
that they don't grow anything. They, they take from here, but we're not taking from anyone. We take from ourselves and we produce here and we eat here. That's what we are saying. The continental free trade is a laudable idea and it has great economic benefits for the continent. And if implemented, it is expected to boost intra-African trade by 52.3% by 2020, which currently stands at 18% compared to other regions. My question is, how prepared are African countries committed to implement this ambitious plan when it goes into effect? Do we have the supportive infrastructure and policies to boost trading with one another? Okay, so yeah, so I was saying that the banking system has been one of the areas that I think enough attention hasn't been given to in terms of transferring money within the continent. Because one thing is that the EU, for example, as of last year, was working heavily on harmonizing their APIs. And so to make transfer within um, the region easy. So I was even saying that like um, sending money, for example, from America to Kenya is much cheaper than sending money from Kenya to South Africa. And so if you're talking about inter, um, what, promoting traffic and trade and transferring money, it's so difficult. How do people make payments? So this is one area that the banks need to step on. We need to really, like, countries need to get up and start having discussions on how to have a harmonized system for payments when it comes to payments of monies here. Another thing I would even say is that travel, it's so expensive moving across the continent, I mean, within the continent, than it is across it. And so we need to work on our traveling. I know they were pushing for this whole Pan-African, you know, air route situation. We have had this, our African trans highway situation trying to go on for what years now. It's been a discussion has been ongoing. It has to be pushed because it's very easy. Actually, if you think about it, apparently to move from Nigeria to Kenya, but by road, but obviously we need to create those routes to make movement very easy. It will facilitate the trade situation. So yes. I think that what transports, the banking system, as when it comes to payments, these are areas that we need to um, work on um, as soon as possible to be able to facilitate the, the whole concept for trade, intra-African trade, because payment, tr- movement, two key areas that I think that enough attention hasn't been given to those areas. So are African countries doing anything in particular to address some of these issues? So interestingly, it had come up in a discussion last two years. Well, it was on this news platform. But currently, the only thing I have known in Ghana, for example, I know that Barclays is trying to have a, a, a conference next year to discuss the AFCFTA. But as to whether the banks in Ghana are thinking of harmonized payment system, I am not aware of that currently. But I think that if there was something like that, it would have come up. So I think that I don't know. Maybe I'm not aware of it. But I think that this is an area that I would want to hear more of banks talking about this banks in, in Ghana, all the banks across the, I mean, across the continent coming together to discuss harmonizing their payment systems. And especially, and then even the transport area, how to make transport easier within the continent. Yes. You know, for the trade routes, we need that to happen. How can this free trade agreement be a win-win situation for all the countries? Because you're thinking about a small country like Togo and also a big country like South Africa that has a vibrant manufacturing sector. So a country like South Africa will take advantage of this free trade agreement than a country like Togo. So how can this be a win-win situation for everyone? If you look at Togo, so within 
the regional blocks, for example, in the southern in the southern regional block, South Africa has the biggest market. If you look at the East African regional block, Kenya has the biggest market. In West Africa, it is Nigeria. So what I was thinking is this: what could happen is that how do we now begin to harness the potential within the region? So Southern African region would say because yes, in their manufacturing sector, for example, let's say they manufacture steel. How can they come together within that region to say? What can we do to boost manufacturing? It's not just a South African thing. It becomes a Southern African thing. So the Southern African region will be competing heavily when it comes to, let's say, steel. So it won't be South Africa promoting steel, but Southern Africa. We spoke about rice earlier. How do we, or tomatoes, or how do, what do we do as a region to say, okay, fine. Another one's talking about the element of sacrifice. The big markets have to realize that. Sometimes the idea of dominating does not bring progress because, yeah, you may be dominating, but if you increase capabilities of other states, you gain more in the long run. So sometimes the idea is that how do you have monopoly and dominate, thinking that it will make you greater. But the more people can spend, the more money you make. So that's a trick that people don't get. So the thing is that imagine as a whole region, you came together in respect to promoting the production of rice. You would not have to import rice at all. So then we will be selling West African rice. Rice come from the West, from West Africa onto not only the African market. They now you're sending to the international market and you're competing with Vietnam and you're competing with India with the Basmati. You see, you compete with Europe. So because the whole idea is not just for inter-African trade to help us, but also help us on an international level where we have a stronger bargaining power in the WTO, which we lack currently. You see, and, and now when we go and speak, we speak as individual states. So there's even South Africa is still, ha- still has, regardless of their market, they have issues in the WTO when it comes to their goods, especially their foods. There are a bunch of cases there with them and the EU. So what happens is that if you're speaking with one voice, because they are in the temperate zone. So let's look at all the temperate countries within Africa that can produce foods like strawberries and stuff. You will compete on the international market with other countries, like European countries that produce the same foods. And you'd have had more capacity to produce in terms of quality, quantity, you see, and then cost. So you can compete better, not only for Africa, but for, for the whole world at large. I think that's the best way to have a level playing. So do you think that we need to focus on sub-regions before the whole continent? Because ECOWAS was created for something like this, to integrate the West African countries. And they are doing somehow okay. So do you think sub-region will work first before integrating the whole continent? So no. So what with a sub-region, it's just for division of labor, you see. So you're only applying the economics element to it. The idea is not to focus on the sub-region becoming strong and then move to the continental. That was what they preached the Monrovia group preached in the early stages of continental integration, asking for a steady form of integration instead of a continental one right there and then, which we've been following, hasn't taken us far. But what I'm explaining is that in the area of looking at the sub-regions, it's only focusing on division of labor. Because in every region, there are things that are common to us. Like in West Africa, the cocoa. When Ghana and, and Ivory Coast came together to put the same price on their cocoa and increase it, Look at what happened. We made more from cocoa than we ever have in years. Because Nestle alone makes more from cocoa than Ghana and Ivory Coast put together. Just one company. So imagine, so for me, what I'm saying is that if Ghana and Ivory Coast in respect to cocoa come together and say, you know what, not only our raw products, but now let's come together, invest in production 
and then start producing our own chocolate. You don't need to import chocolate anymore. And nobody can buy your raw materials for cheap because now you have bargaining, you have leverage. So I'm looking at the division of labor element within the regions to say what are the commonalities with the goods we have and how do we use that to leverage and have like come at, at least so nobody loses in the long run. The small states don't lose, you see, in the discussion. Mami, we have an interesting case in Africa. Some countries have autocratic leaders and some have democratic leaders. Can these countries with different regime elements work together in terms of the labor dynamics? So, you know, let me tell you the honest truth. In my opinion, is there really a democratic state in Africa? Because if you think about it, we have had this discussion. We may end up going, it may become a very long discussion. I had a whole, a whole debate at the Center for Democratic Development in Ghana on democracy and how we know it now. If we had to go to the history of how democracy even came into Africa or what we know as democracy, it was through coercion to get us to secure loans from the IMF and World Bank, you see. And so if your current idea of democracy even came through force to get loans, okay, and to secure debt for yourself, you need to even question whether you are really democratic or not. And the bigger, the, even the other question is that we limit democracy to the idea of elections and then the concept of choosing. We've been choosing people, even the countries that still choose their presidents are still complaining of the same issues they face regardless of who is in power. Because the, the underpinning thing for democracy is freedom and justice. And the big question is that look at African countries that even have democracy. Do we have freedom? Do we have justice? Justice goes beyond just the courts. I'm talking about justice with fairness when it comes to equality, economic equality. We don't even have these things. But with the trade thing, what we are seeing is this. What will happen is that it was going to put away all the ideas of politics away. Because when you're talking about money, Yes, we all have our ideas, but when it comes to trade and development, there's no room for opinions. Money is the one talking and people are going to choose the best outcome over their personal views in the long run because it's going to bring money to their country. So I think that even the trade will defy things like democracy and autocracy, you see. In fact, it's going to be so powerful because now when you're busy exchanging goods and services, no one is really discussing things of what is the political system here? And even eventually with a trade, when the people are becoming more united, they begin to engage even on a, on a continental level on things about politics and how it can be refined and how we can refine our, our democracy and things of that nature. When it comes to the political systems, I think it's a very tricky subject that has so many levels to it. But I will say that, trust me, when you are trading and you are making money, look at Dubai. It's a monarchy. Nobody's asking about the king, the prince of Brunei, because they're making money, right? And then eventually when people have money and then they can get empowered, they can push for the kind of rights that they want in their countries and push for change. So are you saying that economics will come before democracy? Is that what we should start thinking about? I think that even to understand the kind of democracy you want, you need to be empowered, you know, for, um, economically. Because trust me, when people are hungry, they, they can easily buy their votes. We see it in Ghana all the time. They come and promise people and give them a little bit of money and then they go vote and then they are dissatisfied after four years, you see. And it's because they do that because of, of, of um, money. They don't have enough. But when people are economically empowered and they are trading and they are getting capacity, they now even have a bargaining power now, even on a political level. So even the bargaining power doesn't only affect trade now. It even comes down to the average person who now has enough in their pocket to talk. 
and say, you know one thing, I'm not going to vote for you because of money. I have money, right? I'm going to vote for you because of the policy that you have. It really empowers people. I train empowers people, I believe. And it will empower our people to make better choices democratically. You see that over than choosing based on ethnicity and things that are, are frivolous like that. I think when it comes to economic issue, it's very important because most people on the continent are facing serious economic issues. So if that can be addressed through this trade agreement, I think that would be great and would be a first step towards the integration. How about interborder related issues? Some countries are reluctant to open up their borders. For instance, Nigeria recently closed its border with Benin to prevent the movement of goods from its neighboring countries. At the moment, many traders are stranded at the border. How prepared is AU to deal with some of these issues when they come up? Well, the thing is that since it came up, actually, people have been talking about what ECOWAS can do to solve the issue. Because for Nigeria, like I said, they were doing it to protect their rice industry. So there has to be a discussion on how can we increase capacity for people to produce locally so that they don't need to feel like they need to take certain drastic measures of this nature to protect their markets. You see, because we're protecting their markets from competitive rice from Asia. Right. So I was thinking that the best way that you can do that is that how can we invest more in our local industries to boost the manufacturing sector so that at the end of the day, like I was mentioning, that if you're producing Nigeria and maybe Ghana come together to produce rice, there won't be issues of this nature. How do we protect our market protectionism? It won't be there. That discussion. Yes, because I'm looking at the bigger picture. You just mentioned protectionism. Wouldn't the proposed tariff agreements on products result in budgetary pressure, especially on African countries that depend on tariffs as a revenue-generating source? What will AU do about any revenue losses for some countries? And are there measures to help countries that may experience budgetary pressure due to the 90% tariff reduction? It won't because in the long run, you'll be gaining more. I mean, we're looking at trillions of dollars that will be um, coming into our, I mean, our GDP increasing by trillions. So yes, in the beginning, you cut tariffs, you may feel a pinch or two, but in the long term, the gain is, I mean, is momentous. You cannot even begin to discuss that. So Mami, what can African countries do to foster and take advantage of this agreement to help promote economic growth on the continent in the short run? And what do we need? Uh, and also, what do we need to do to ensure that this agreement becomes a reality and in the long run benefits everyone? One thing I'll say is this, look at the youth right now, empower African, the entrepreneurs. There's so many entrepreneurs. There are too many rigid local laws that make it difficult for African entrepreneurs to, you know, put their goods on the market. People also have their goods, but they don't have access to a market. So one thing I'll say is that we need to invest more in our local industries and then see how can we generate revenue within through, you know, innovative means than going for loans. You see, let's cut down the loans and think of how can we create ways to gain revenue locally so that we can invest the money back into our local industries to support our farmers, to subsidize their cost of production, to have more policies to encourage young African entrepreneurs coming up because they are the future, of course. And I think that even for this to be a success, we need to bring everybody on board, the teacher, the farmer, the banker, and how do we break down what the concept of trade is, enlighten people. The market, like in Ghana, the market women, they are like the backbone of our economy. They need to understand what the AFCFT is going to mean. And so we need to have like so many ongoing discussions around and yeah, break down the concept and then create systems, like I said, payment systems, transport systems to facilitate the benefit of this incredible 
concept of the AFCFTA. That is, they're going to, like, I mean, it's something that the world hasn't seen before. And I think for once, Africa is going to have the chance to, to lead something. So I hope that we get to lead it well by bringing everybody on board and then trying to make sure everybody understands what the importance of this movement. Lastly, we are observing the pluralized politics of Brexit these days in the United Kingdom. As opposed to further integration, there seems to be an element of disunity in the European integration process. What do you think the West, and in particular, the European Union, can learn from African quest for integration? Boy, um, so the European Union dynamic, it's a little different. I think that there were issues from the onset. I mean, from the Greece situation, even Greece trying to um, become part of the EU and concealing some of its debt. There's so many things that were not clear from the onset from, you know, commencing the EU because, I mean, it started with the whole, the euro you know, come into being. So the monetary system created a lot of issues for them. In Africa, for example, we don't really have a joint monetary system. So even though the West African region is trying to launch the ECHO um, next year, the thing about the EU, the dynamic has come into place with the Brexit, that the pound has been a very strong source as a currency for the EU, okay? And I mean, there's just so many things at play with the EU dynamic. With the African situation, we are looking at trade. So one of the things that we can actually learn from the process is that if our, because for, for a common currency, that's like the highest, one of the highest levels of integration. We haven't gotten there yet. But if that is our intention to do so, then we need to know what it entails from the onset. Like, for example, with the ECHO coming into being next year, according to our, our leaders, we have car- uh, countries, the Francophone states that have their currency pegged to the, the French franc. And so we already know that majority of their money goes back to France. France has a say with their currency at their central bank. So many dynamics in it that come into being. So we need to really iron out all of these issues. For me, I actually do propose something in terms of a way to harmonize our payment system. That'll be the best way, number one. Number two, even if you're looking at a common currency, I would say it should, we should find a digitized way of paying. So we know we have the concept of the cryptocurrency. I mean, Facebook is coming up with its own, you know, cryptocurrency. But I was just thinking that there could be a way, since you're moving towards e-commerce, how can we find a way to circumvent certain things, still trying to push for integration, still trying to think of having one currency, but maybe not the conventional way, you see? And I would suggest that. Because our hard money comes, um, all of all of our monies are pegged to something. Our monies are pegged to the dollar. If the dollar has um, hiccups, we have hiccups. So many things. So, I mean, the best way we can learn from the EU is not to rush. Sure, when it comes to our, our, our currency. But number two, how do we figure out our payment system? And then maybe look for a common way to make payments so that at least there is a specific, you see, a specific country that is supporting the integration. So in the EU, Britain has played a very key role in it, right? And every integration process, there are countries that play key roles, countries that have the biggest markets. So by in the African context, what do we do in our collaborative effort to make sure that no country is carrying the rest of the continent? Nigeria has been carrying um, West Africa through ECOWAS. That is why when they closed their border, everybody was like, you know, stranded. We have to find, you know, be able to find line ways, tune things to make sure that they're in the specific country that is ruling everything. So when they pull out, we all suffer. That's the lesson we can learn from the EU situation and make sure everybody is clear and honest about their monies when they are coming in, their debt. But that's for if you're having one currency. So that's why Africa's situation is different. We are focusing on trade first. 
before anything like a common currency. In that area, we will not have some of the issues that the EU has faced. So can Africa lead the way for integration? I mean, for globally, I would tell you that, yes, I think we have something to show for it if we do not try to mimic what other countries or other regions have done, but try to be organic and be true to ourselves and respect um, our different cultural dynamics at the same time, realizing that collaboration will always precede competition. If you go in with competition, you're never creative. You only copy. And competition does not push for unity. Rather, it pushes for self-interest. And self-interest doesn't get you very far. It may get you to a point really quick, but you cannot, doesn't sustain you in the long term. And we've seen that play out in the EU. So what we are seeing, we are seeing it happening now with, with some of the NAFTA agreements and stuff. But what we are seeing in Africa, yes, we will lead the world by saying that we come from a history of Ubuntu, the concept of I am because you are, that um, my brother's well-being is my well-being. So with that mental dynamic, if we bring that into play, we can lead integration in the world by showing them, you know, how it can be done. Thank you, Mami for joining us today. Thank you too, Rira. It was great chatting with you. Mami Arinado is currently the Director of Operations and Head of Administration at Saka Savannah. The views expressed in this interview are the guest's own and do not necessarily reflect those of Leaders of Africa and the Leaders of Africa Institute. Do you have thoughts on economic integration on the continent? We want to hear from you. Share your comments and questions at yourvoice@leadersofafrica.org. To learn more about Leaders of Africa, visit our website, leadersofafrica.org, and follow us on social media. And that's all for this episode of Leaders' Voices from Leaders of Africa. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.